This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. I want to introduce you to the best gift ever, SockPanda.com. They're a monthly awesome sock subscription that will get you noticed and help start a conversation. The Sock Panda offers original designs for men, women, and kids ages three and up. And even better, when you sign up for a subscription, the SockPanda.com donates socks to someone in need. As of September 2017, the company has donated nearly 100,000 socks to homeless shelters, low-income senior citizens, hospitals, and the underprivileged classrooms throughout the country. Sign up today at SockPanda.com, and what I'm going to give you is 15% off your order, 100 words 15. That's the number 100 words 15 for 15% off your first order. Trust me, this is super fun if you get this for your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, or your friends. They'll love it. They'll be like, hey, this is cool, and it's the gift that keeps on giving, and you're going to look cool, and they're always going to be reminded of you when they put their cool socks on. So SockPanda.com, 15% off, 100 words, 15. Use that promo code. All right, now on to the show. What's up, everybody? I'm Ray Harkins, and you're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Happy Thanksgiving, or if you don't celebrate it, then just happy average normal day. And also, if you're like myself and you don't eat meat and are vegan or vegetarian, then uh, happy Tofurky Day, right? Let me just cover all the bases there. <laughs> Anyways, you're not tuning in to, uh, well, maybe actually you are tuning in to uh, distract yourself from all the, the the holiday chaos that happens, whether you're on a plane whether you're being like, I, I really can't handle my family talk, I can't handle the politics that get brought up and all that stuff. So welcome. Hopefully this is a, a respite from all of that uh, insanity. But what we do here is talk about independent music and talk to people who are heavily involved or have been profoundly impacted by this awesome music scene. And today's guest is Jimmy Lavelle or Laval Lavelle. That's it. That's it. He is a person who I have looked up to for quite some time because, um, yeah, he plays in the Album Leaf, plays in Tristeza, he played in The Locust, um, played in a really important band to me that is often not talk, talked about, uh, Guyver One. Their first 7-inch was unbelievable. But, um, yeah, Jimmy's a person I've had uh, kind of circled on my list to uh, speak to, and then finally the opportunity came up. We uh, we hopped on uh, Skype and actually the telephone. We had a little connectivity issues, so there's there's little hiccups in the conversation occasionally here, but nothing that would uh, deter you from listening to it. I've edited most of that out, but you know, just in case you notice the shift in audio quality, we had to hop from Skype to the phone. So you know, it happens, right? You, you deal with it as you're uh, as you're in the middle of it. So yeah, I uh, I hope you're well. Uh, the show is doing well. We will be doing our year-end episode very shortly here, and I think we're going to be releasing it. Uh, let me look at my notes here, because I know many of you like that episode, and it's uh, December 13th. I think that's the day that we are going to be releasing it. So yeah, just in time for the holidays and uh, hopefully year-end list. So yeah, that's what we got, and uh, what else do I got to tell you? I don't know. I mean, that that's that's basically all right. No, just kidding. NoEcho.net, our awesome web partners that promote the show and are a great source of content for anything punk, hardcore, metal related. They do great spotlights on photographers, on vinyl collectors. It's just a uh, treasure trove of fun that you can spend a lot of time on. So I highly encourage you to check out that website. And uh, yeah, I'm a little under the weather. I apologize. My my voice may sound like you know a tone or two lower, so I apologize for that. And then um, also for those of you that are in Canada, please come hang out at the Taken shows that I will be playing 
December, let's see, December 8th, 7th, 8th through the 11th. So basically, if you are in Toronto, Hamilton, or Montreal, please come hang out. We'll be playing with Counterparts, Alexis on Fire, some really, really fun shows. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to it because, uh, yeah, we've been practicing a lot and uh, hopefully we don't suck, right? (laughs) But anyways, for those Canadian listeners, please come out and hang out. And, um, yeah, that's all as far as, uh, you know, business plugs and pleasantries out of the way. But, uh, Jimmy, like I said, I, I was obsessed with Tristeza. Like I, I was, that was like one of the, uh, records that everybody in Taken when we were on the road, we could just pop that Tristeza record in and everybody would enjoy it. And I saw them multiple times touring off Spine and Sensory. Um, which they're actually doing uh, a special re-release very shortly. And that's one of the reasons why Jimmy was on the show. Um, So please, if you haven't listened to Seiza, like, oh my gosh, you're missing out. And the album Leaf, unbelievable work that he has done um, for, I mean, many, many years now. Um, I I can't remember exactly when he said he quote-unquote started it. We talk about it a little bit in the interview. But he's just a prolific musician, um, a dude that is just super cool, super nice, as you'll hear from the conversation. So, yeah. Jimmy Lavelle, here's our chat. I'll talk to you after the show. I live in Orange County and have been, you know, basically going to, you know, punk and hardcore shows since I was about, you know, 15 or so. So you're, um, you're probably familiar with chain reaction. Oh, intimately played there many times, (laughs) been, been to shows many times. Um, Oh, do you go as far back as the Coos Cafe? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Cause I'm 30, I'm 36. You're, oh, here we go. Okay, cool. Yeah. You're just a few years older, I think. Um, yes, I am. We, we are, I know then, 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 then this is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, oh, dude. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're in it. <laughs> and yeah. that- there's so many, I mean, cause there's so many people that like, do you just like, unless you live that scene, you really can't explain like the power of it. You know what I mean? No, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think it's so, um, you know, that's why I, I, I've been circling around you in regards to like, we've never met, but we've been in the same rooms for many, many years. It's just like, oh yeah, we just haven't been like, Hey, Jimmy, here's Ray, Ray, Jimmy, blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah. So like, as I, you know, started to, you know, go to shows and experience more of, you know, what it's like to be a part of that community, you know, bands like the Locust were unescapable. Like there's no way that you could not even accidentally see you guys, (laughs) Um, you know, just by, you know, at the shows at the PCH club or Coos Cafe, like you mentioned, um, as you started to kind of get your feet wet with, uh, you know, Locust and obviously, uh, you know, all the bands that you did kind of surrounding that, um, was it exciting just to be playing these shows and kind of, you know, witnessing the, um, you know, I guess impact that, uh, the bands, you know, you don't have perspective on at the time, but, you know, was it exciting for you to be a part of it? I mean, yeah, it was, and, and, you're, and you're exactly right when you say that, like, you didn't really have, I didn't really have perspective on it um, at the time at all, um, <clears throat> because growing up in that scene, obviously, like, there was just, you know, shows were just packed, and it was just always kind of, like, it was just, it, it was that, it was just, like, there's a, you know, there's a hardcore show, or there's a funk show, and, 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 you know, and it was basically, it was always kind of organized and thrown by friends or friends of friends or just kind of a, you know, the same kind of community within each, 
city. Um, so it was always the same people and it was definitely just a part of, you know, you were just part of a community and it was just, I mean, that was the, that was kind of the, that was the allure of it in a way. Um, and, and of course, like, you know, when you, when you would like, when we would tour, like for instance, my first tour was in spring break of 1996 and we toured out to Detroit and back to play the Michigan fest. Um, and this was when I was in Guyver one. Um, and it was obviously we were, I was in high school still and my mom, my parents let me go, you know, so we had to go out to Detroit and back in a week. And it was like eight of us just piled into a little, like not the 15 passenger van, but the smallest size possible. <laughs> so, you know, we just like crammed in and like went out and, it was a blast and it was super fun. And when we got there, I mean, it was just like, that was where I met, you know, the likes of like Christopher Sprague, who I went on to form Tristezza and Crimson Curse with, um, Jimmy Laner, who was, you know, at the time he was in a band called Bev Clone. He was a drummer for Tristezza. Christopher was in a band called Constance Sincati, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was just like that community was just like arms wide open, you know, accepting of, of anything and, and, and anyone, as long as you weren't a, a dick, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and obviously there were bands like amongst that, you know, that were a part of the scene that were kind of like, like thought of as bigger, you know, like the, like back then it was like, you know, like Hoover or like, you know, Shotmaker or a lot of the like, um, kind of like East Coast hardcore bands or ASUC and, and um, um, I can't, you know, it's like, it's kind of drawing a blank. Um, there's a, like a handful of bands that were from, it, you know, whatever it was. I mean, it was just like everybody was there and there was a, and there was no sense of like headliner. Um, yeah, it was like playing last. That was basically all it was called. That's of that. It was like, there was just anticipation for a band's set. So, you know, there was no, like, there was none of that back then. It was like, oh, who plays first, who plays last kind of deal. Um, that didn't really come into play until I started playing in a band in, in Tristeza, which, you know, was not a hardcore band and right. kind of is, is in this world. Um, but, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, I was just, it was just an amazing part of my life and it shapes who I am and I still have a DIY ethic and I still try to cut corners and do things on the sly, like, you know, <laughs> left and right. And, um, yeah, I mean it, I, and I can't even like gauge like how many people were at these things, whether it was like hundreds or, you know, or tens. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. I was like, wait, what, how do you refer to that? <laughs> yeah. Tens. Um, but I mean, but like years later, I mean, and there were shows and I, I, I don't even remember turnouts and how many people were there. But I mean, I, I remember looking back at videos. There was like a, it was just after Eric um, from Unbroken and Swing Kids had passed away. We played a benefit show in, I think it was in Corona. No, San Bernardino. It's still, it's still, the, still to this day, a top five show that I've ever been to. It was so unbelievable. So you know what I'm talking about. I yeah. mean, there's video of it and it was, you know, we, I was in Crimson Curse at the time when we played. Yep. Um, I have no idea how many people were there and it seemed massive to me at the time, but I have no idea and I can't remember. I think um, it was, if my memory serves me right, cause I think it was, um, yeah, I, I want to say it was between eight and 900 people, but like, it felt like 15,000, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, so I have like no gauge of it, but, but I do remember it just being like very important and a band like unbroken was very important. Um, you know, the straight edge scene, the straight edge scene wasn't really my most favorite thing, but you know, they're all my friends and I wasn't straight edge myself, but you know, I, we were all, you know, we were all tight. Um, and there was a lot of just male macho, like white, just things going on within that straight edge you know, faction of the, of the hardcore scene. And that was just not anything that I was interested in. Um, but I felt like unbroken kind of blended the two worlds together in a way, even though they were very much straight edge, but they also kind of just blended the two and kind of like brought those communities together, which often caused problems too, fights in the parking lot and all that kind of shit. (laughs) When we We got, you know, we got, I mean, we were getting, just antagonized like left and right, you know, all the time, um, by like the, you know, the kind of like macho straight edge guys. Um, anyhow, I don't know how I went into that tangent, but no, no, well, it's, it's jogging memories. I understand what you mean. The sentiments that you're trying to, um, you know, uh, express are definitely, um, and I don't, yeah, I mean, within that, it was still a sense of strong sense of community, and that's what it was. It was all the communities coming together and bands that would bring communities together. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I don't remember like the numbers, but yeah, I mean, like some shows seemed massive. I remember we played in our first tour in Europe as the Locust. Um, we played with uh, Final Exit, which is a two of the dudes from Refused. Um, and we all met each other there and this was kind of like it was a funny thing because back then um and i hate to say it but like sweden was knocking you know san diego style like for sure <laughs> the hardcore scene there like yep. everybody had the bowl haircuts and the high waters and all of our like funny you know outfits and stuff like that and we were like you know kind of pushing the envelope of of musically of what was going on. We toured with another band there that wasn't stylistically like style like clothing wise the same but it did show kind of reach amongst what we were doing, which I take in no way claim that we started it at all. Um, but just like, you know, everything is a rip off of something, you know? Um, I mean, going back, like we were ripping off our elders and bands like Antioch arrow and heroin, you know, totally. uh, things like that. I mean, if you want to talk about the first, like stylistically bowl cut and high water pants as, you know, as Aaron Montaigne, you know? So it's like, <laughs> yeah, totally. but anyhow, who, you know, but that like just spread through Europe and like everywhere we were going to, we were running into these, you know, just hardcore kids that were like dressed like us. And, you know, it wasn't like we did it, but, um, it's just the whole like thing that we were doing was also spreading across. So it just kind of furthermore, like solidified, like a sense of like, there's a community of hardcore kids and, you know, we didn't have a booking agent or anything like that. We had a friend that, just kind of like reached out to all of those communities within Europe and she drove us around. She's big. She works at, uh, she worked at victory records forever. Um, it's now lives in Orange County, but, um, she's a, she was a British woman. She lived in Leeds and, and just goes way back. And, you know, I don't know, just, it's just a, a show of like how things worked back then. It was all about community and all about like, you know, just arms open and, and just being helpful and, events and spaces that you know are not like the Fonda theater or something you know what I mean so yeah yeah no totally and I, I 
I like, uh, you know, I mean, what made me want to talk to you even more was the fact that, you know, because you have done such a wide variety of musical things, you know, you haven't just stuck to one lane, so to speak, because, you know, sometimes you have your, and not knocking people like, you know, whatever, Ray Capo of doing like, yeah, he's, you know, yeah, you could argue that Shelter sounds different from Youth of Today, but, you know, there's still (laughs) branches on the same tree, you know? Um, And so I always like when people such as yourself who have come from this, you know, DIY communal mentality, take those principles and ideas and, you know, you're whatever you're doing with Psyche Rose. And it's like you're doing these things that are on such a large level that people might not have had the same experience. And then they look at you and they're probably just like, what is Jimmy doing? Like, he's just traveling around like by himself with this thing. Like, you know, just like, but that's the world that you come from. And so uh, that impact and influence will kind of, you know, I guess spread in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And just a little, you know, it's just, that's, it's just instilled in me, you know, that's like, that's those, you know, those are my roots and those are my learning years and, and it's awesome, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I came from that as opposed to like, I see other people that are just like, you know, like didn't, you know, didn't pay their dues, so to speak. You know, like the, the, the kind of a big term in, in the hardcore world, but I don't think it's a term in the indie world or the rock world because they don't even know what it means. You know, it's like, <laughs> totally. Yes. Just, the idea, you know, the idea that someone like, you know, puts on a, a local show, um, you know, right. that, that doesn't exist for, you know, your sort of atypical radio rock band, you know, it's like their first show is at like the Roxy, you know, like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, kind of drill down on, on you as a person, and I'm going to you know get a little nerdy with Guyver One here in a minute. Um, but uh, <laughs> were, you, were you born and raised in San Diego, or where did you come up? Yeah, born and raised in San Diego. Okay. And what was your family structure like growing up, like brothers and sisters and mom and dad uh, in the house? I had, yeah, my mom, mom and dad um, was, I was their second, I was, I'm the only child of their second marriage. So I had uh, uh, my half-brother, six years older than me. Um, and then my two half sisters that are 11 and 14 years older than me. Um, so by the time I was kind of like, you know, aware of the world, um, my sisters were both out of the house and I basically kind of grew up with my brother, definitely, you know, middle, middle class, lower middle class, whatever. Um, just, yeah, didn't come from much, but like, you know, uh, my parents supported every move I made. Um, or wanted to make. Um, so that was cool. And, yeah. You know, Did I, you- went through, I went through my shit. Like I was a cholo for a while, I, you know, like all kinds of stuff. Like I was all over the place. So, you know, just as a kid, I was a hip hop guy. I was like super into tribe called quest and like, you know, the, like De La Soul and leaders of the new school and, you know, jungle brothers, just like all that scene. Uh, which was like the Native Tongues crew back then. I was like super into that world. Um, I don't know. I was into all kinds of stuff, but you know, I think I think when it came to like seventh, eighth grade is when I kind of started to kind of like discover musically things that were going in the direction of indie. Um, and when I say like discovering things, that's like that's like when like Nirvana came up and like early Red Hot Chili Peppers stuff and like. Uh, um, Smashing Pumpkins and you know, even Pearl Jam and all of those kinds of like that Soundgarden and like that kind of world fuzzy and and then that kind of just spread open you know 
just peeled back the, the, the hidden layer of an immense world of indie music, you know. Sure. Discovering uh, like Juno 44 and like, just, you know, all of that stuff. All right, real talk. This sponsor, I cannot stress enough, you have to try it out. So texture, like, have you ever walked by a newsstand and like saw a magazine and you're like, that looks really cool, but like, you know, you didn't have time to stop or you didn't really re- reflect on it any further than that, like those few minutes of just like, oh, that, that looks cool. That cover story looks interesting. Next time, remember texture. So with the texture app, not only do you get a peek, you get the whole magazine plus unlimited access to over 200 additional premium titles like Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker and Wired. And right now you can do this all for free. So just imagine having all of your favorite magazines at your fingertips and their back issues anytime, anywhere. So you can start your free trial of Texture by going to texture.com slash words. And then if you choose to continue, the listeners of this show will get Texture for just $10 a month. That's over 30% off the listed price. And dude, $10 a month for unlimited reading, that is an unbelievable deal. There's also great gift options available for the holiday season, so please go to texture.com slash words and start your free trial today. Like I said, this is amazing. Basically, I don't subscribe to any magazines anymore. I have none of that clutter, but I have all of the cool content and stuff from so many different magazines. Like I said, I was able to die. I never read The Atlantic. I knew that that was a very, very cool magazine that I would probably be interested in, sampled it out, and I was like, yo, I'm in. So it's great. And the app is like the easiest thing to use. I cannot stress this enough. Try it out. You'll love it. And then you'll be a subscriber just like me. So go to texture.com slash words. Please enjoy that free trial and then dive into the subscription. Trust me. This is great stuff. So texture.com slash words. Do it up. Okay. Now here's the rest of the show. But yeah, no, I know what you're saying in regards to the, um, uh, you know, as you start to filter through identities and start to get exposed to things that you feel like you actually have ownership of, that's, you know, that's exciting. And you have to experiment with that stuff because there's no way that, um, you know, you just are born into being quote unquote, you know, cool or part of a scene or whatever, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be terrible with a bunch of stuff first. I know. Yeah, totally. Um, the, uh, and, and so then, you know, as you started to, you know, go into high school and start to develop more of your identity and like you said, start to, you know, tour, um, you know, that's a weird concept for most people when, you know, I'm sure you, when you approach your parents and cause the first tour you did, like you said, it was Guyver one and Jenny Piccolo, right? No, it was just Guyver one. Okay. Yeah. So like how, how did your parents react to that? Were they just like, Oh yeah, of course, Jimmy can go for a week and you know, I'm sure his classmates will understand what it means to be on <laughs> tour. Like, was it just super weird? I mean, it, it, it was, I guess, but I, but also like, I feel like, you know, it was 1996. There wasn't so much like helicopter parenting and there was like a lot more independence in, um, I was a senior in high school. I was, I was, uh, you know, I was a good, I was a good kid. Um, I was actually straight edge during that time, but I wasn't straight edge, like hard, like mentality straight edge. I was, you know, I was a, I was a punk kid, but I was, you know, but I was, my parents knew that I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't do, you know, and I was surrounded. And I was in those years is when I met like JP and Justin Pearson and like, started discovering the San Diego scene and going out to a lot of shows. So I was doing a lot of things. I was driving up to LA for shows and coming back and, you know, I kind of proved my responsibility, I guess. Um, 
at least I don't have a clear memory of, of the conversation of when I'm like, Hey, um, you think it'd be cool to like hop in the van with like eight other dudes with no seatbelts in a loft and drive cross country. I mean, the oldest dude's only 20. Is that cool? Totally. <laughs> I mean, like, that's not like, <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, who knows? Um, I don't remember what the conversation was, but I think that it's some, it's some way I had to have proven that I was a responsible um, kid, teenager that made good choices and, you know, didn't, I didn't get into trouble and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and I was also going with my best friend, um, at the time, his name was Corey, who played guitar and got one, um, was also going and he had a much stricter kind of like family, but they let him go too. So, I mean, something happened where we got, we, I mean, we made the, we made it happen, but, um, and, but, you know, times were different back then too, you know, it was like, it was just different. Um, yeah, uh, no, yeah. I, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you yeah. definitely don't have the, cause I mean, most normal people, when they hear the word tour, they automatically think of, you know, tour buses and all that sort of stuff. And then when you have to explain to people like, not, you know, not even your parents, but just, you know, your friends that aren't remotely connected to, you know, the punk and hardcore world. And then that idea is so foreign to them of just driving around in a van for, you know, a week at a time or whatever. Did you like touring kind of right away? Or was that something that you kind of had to, you know, I guess, learn to like over time? Oh, no, I right away liked it. I, you know, I fell in love with touring like immediately. It was just, I mean, that, that first tour, I still, when I think about it, was like probably the most, the best tour I'd ever done. I mean, still like to this day just because it was only a week but like the relationships that I made on that tour the friendships the like places that we played um it was it was even better than that summer we did our first Locust Jenny Piccolo tour um and that was super fun too but it was just that first thing I mean it's just like I don't know it's like the first time you ever uh had a milkshake or something, I don't know, whatever, you know, like something like that. It's just that kind of like feeling of, um, yeah, I mean, I just like fell in love right away. And, and I love traveling. I grew up traveling. I grew up like road tripping with my parents. And, um, so I, that side of it was already something that I was, you know, really connected with. Um, so yeah, I mean, right away I was just, I was, I was down. That's cool. Cause you, uh, I, this is me just making a judgment call, just, you know, kind of <laughs> watching you play and, uh, you know, observing the art that you've created. Like you, you strike me as a very, you know, sort of, uh, reserved, um, guy and not, you know, uh, the, you know, I'm going to compare you to, you know, uh, another one of your old bandmates where it's like, you clearly weren't the Justin Pearson of the band because, you know, <laughs> clearly, clearly he's the person that's attracting the, the most attention. Um, and so I know sometimes people yeah. that are of a certain disposition, um, you know, it, that are, are more, you know, introverted, um, you know, don't like the touring experience initially just because it is kind of like, Oh my gosh, I'm throwing around all these people at all times. And like, I need my, my space. Um, but it's, it sounds like that wasn't the case for you at all. No, I mean, on stage, I'm not the most like outspoken vocal person or something like that. Um, but I mean, definitely like, uh, socially and stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a chatterbox. <laughs> I'm not like, you know, totally, uh, right um yeah yeah i'm i'm not not a people person i guess yeah but, no you that's know, on stage it's a little bit yeah i'm a little bit different yeah absolutely that's just comfort i mean i feel like you know it's not it's not about what i have to say when i'm up on stage playing or you know or when i'm playing a show it's about 
that it's about the art of what I'm doing and that's, you know, what I'm there for. And that's, you know, what, what I want to do. I don't want to, I don't know, you know, uh, hi, hello. Well, you know, these kinds of things, but I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, going to say a lot more than that. Yeah, sure. No, I I get it. Um, and I, uh, normally I don't get like this super nerdy about, you know, bands that are, you know, are completely quote unquote forgotten about, you know, but like Giver one, uh-huh. like, you, you guys first seven inch. Um, I don't even remember. No, I think I may have gotten it from like vinyl solution at Huntington beach. It was just one of those things where, you know, I knew that there was a connection to the San Diego scene, which I was becoming obsessed with. And like that seven inch. So this day, like, you know, I could put it on and just be like, Oh, this is this is like untouchable. It's just so good because it was, um, but you know, but you know, in in contrast, like the uh, the full length, you know, I will say that I was extremely disappointed in the full length. But granted, uh, right, and I wasn't on it. I wasn't on it. Right. I had nothing to do with it. Right, right. Yeah. It, but um, it, the I guess the sort of uh, visceral nature of Giver One and the strong aesthetic, where it was like. You know, I didn't know what anime was at the time, and then I was just kind of like, like, what is this? I don't. And like, clearly, I didn't have Wikipedia to help, you know, guide me through the uh, <laughs> the mythology of yeah. number one. But um, you know, I, I presume, like you said, because you're you're talking so um, you know fondly about the touring experience and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, you, you probably you played in the band for what, like, less than a year, if that, or was it a little bit longer? Uh, no, I, I think I was in the band for maybe even four months or six months or something like that. Did you, Um, did you record on the seven inch? Yes. So the seven inch is me. Um, I, I'm on the seven inch. Uh, I wrote, you know, half the songs and, you know, things like that. Uh, um, I cannot take credit for the artwork and the design and the layout. That's all kind of Eddie. Um, and, um, back then was a really like JP and Eddie lived together and they were kind of the, like, I mean, if you want to get into like the dynamics of like the, the house and that immediate scene, like they were kind of like Eddie was like a, you know, like was a, like piercing, like had a brand of, was a, was a, I don't know what you call it. What do we call somebody who pierces people? Um, a, uh, yeah, a jeweler. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, so he was doing like piercing and he was kind of like, like those two guys were like the godfathers at the pinnacles of like the, the, the San Diego scene at that level. You know, there were the guys that were above it, but they had kind of like, kind of like fucked up and moved on or something like Aaron Montaigne and Matt Anderson and, you know, guys that were like Matt Anderson doing gravity and stuff like that. Um, but during the time, like that was kind of the shit that was when like swing kids were super strong. Um, uh, it was mostly just swing kids and Spanakorza. This whole scene that just kind of started, um, and those two dudes were kind of at the top um, and like super influential and just like, you know, whatever, like people would look up to them. The Click Attack Italia was going at the time too, which is one of the greatest bands I've still. Um, totally. But, um, um, but anyhow, so like Eddie and JP also kind of like butted heads. I think it was more on Eddie's side. I don't think really JP gave a shit. Um, but I mean, there was just like egos and dynamics and shit going on or whatever. And like, Corey and I, my best friend from high school, kind of like, I mean, basically what happened was Corey started dating this, this, uh, dating a girl who lived in, um, and, and, uh, uh, lived with JP and Eddie. Um, so Corey met everybody else kind of like brought me in and just like whatever. And like, they discovered that, you know, for lack of a better way of talking about ourselves, that 
Corey and I were kind of badass musicians. <laughs> and, um, and also I was playing in a band with Gabe Serbian at the time too. Um, the three of us were me, Corey and Gabe Serbian, um, who's the drummer for Locust. Um, we it started all playing together when we were all like 15. Um, so basically like, we kind of met and like brought in, um, the dude who was then playing guitar with, uh, Garber one had a fallout with Eddie, got kicked out. Corey and I were right there. Like, Hey, we could do it. So then we kind of joined, um, locust kind of shifted gears from their dual vocalist bass guitar drums lineup and wanted to do something different. So the two guys like they were singing, um, Dylan and Dave, uh, left and I played keyboards. They wanted to add keyboards. So I started playing keyboards and locusts and this all happened at the same time. Um, that didn't make Eddie happy because then we would play shows together where I was doing a Giver show. And then I'd right turn back around and set up my keyboard and play a locust show. Um, so it was like, this like jealousy thing kind of thing that was going on at the time. And like, it was kind of funny and it was kind of, you know, whatever, like I was a new guy and like, it's kind of cool and whatever, you know? And then I think I just had to like make a choice. Um, and I, you know, I was Eddie, I think just made me make a choice. Like you gotta, you either gotta be with me or like, you know, you leave the band or whatever. And so I, yeah, so I just stuck with the locust. Yeah. Well, it's funny too. And that's kind of what happened at that time. So, yeah, and that's, the only thing we had done was the seven inch and then they went on to do that full length, which I agree is, is not very good. Um, no. <laughs> and did their, and toured. <laughs> right. Right. And he just, yeah. you know, putting, putting myself back in my, you know, whatever 18, 19 year old brain where I was, you know, obsessed with the seven inch and then getting the full length and just being like, well, dude, what is like, this is so disappointing. And like, you know, because that time, even though the internet, you know, clearly started to exist then, but it wasn't in the way that I would be able to build a context of why Giver one sounds so different from the, the LP to the seven inch, you know? And so it's right. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. It, but uh, honestly, I'm really, I, I'm glad that you kind of spelled those dynamics out because I, uh, you know, I think that stuff is so emblematic of yeah. the youthfulness. And of, I mean, granted, like I, I was 17, Corey was 17. We were still in high school, but Eddie was like 19. Uh, JP was 19. I think we were all kids. Like it was, we were young, you know? So there was also just that dynamic. If you can even imagine like, you know, 19, 17, 19 year olds, like doing this kind of thing now, you know, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> oh, I, no, Absolutely. Um, yeah, something something that I always found interesting about uh, you know the San Diego scene in particular as well was um, you know because it's you know clearly it's not very far from you know Orange County or LA it's obviously always within you know a stone's throw but you know each particular you know city from Los Angeles to Orange County to you know San Diego County had all these distinct differences um, and in San Diego it's always been eclectic, especially like you said, you know, once, you know, Antioch Arrow and all these bands started to exist in the nineties. Um, and I think, you know, in part when you started to do Tristeza, um, you know, and then, you know, clearly, and I, I find it so funny because the, you know, marketing behind that, you know, spine and sensory when it came out was just like, Oh yeah, ex locust. And so it's like, you know, people bought the record just was like, what the hell is this? Like, this isn't anything like the locust, you know? <laughs> But, it, but I think because of that, you know, people's uh, musical palettes were able to 
you know, at least give it a listen as opposed to just be like, oh, this isn't fast, aggressive stuff or whatever. Um, I, I, yeah. I presume that you noticed that, you know, as you started to kind of get out there where people expected one thing, but you gave them another. Well, for sure. But I mean, cause like, again, like, like I said, like we were super young and for me, um, kind of being influenced and, and kind of in, in awestruck really about like the Giver and the Locust and cause those are bands that existed. I didn't start, you know, they are already existed swing kids and, um, click attack and, and, and Antioch arrow and heroin and all these bands that were like happening, like even Antioch and arrow and heroin were, uh, before my time, um, you know, those bands were like happening probably when I was like 14 or something like that. So it was kind of like just before my time. Um, so this was like, just like, Holy shit. Like, this is amazing. Look at all these kids and like we're playing shows and nobody gives a fuck. And it's just like playing in this living room and it's so fun. And like, so I started doing that and, um, you know, that was obviously exciting and just like, you know, just, I mean, you can't beat that feeling in a way. Um, but at the same time I had a four track and I was making mellow ass music and, you know, just like recording sappy songs and like, you know, doing all this really mellow stuff. And, and, you know, I was also really into like, uh, like red house painters and, and Rachel's and, uh, like tortoise and, um, all of these other bands during my hardcore time, I kind of started discovering and like, I don't want to say it was a phase, but it was just like, that wasn't what I was meant to be doing. I guess, you know, I was always doing something on the mellower side, um, on my own. Uh, and then writing kids and writing songs for these hardcore bands as like a spastic teenager, you know? Um, so for me and also, I mean, everybody else in Tristezza also came from, except for, uh, Luis and Steven. Um, but when we started that band, it was me and Christopher just were roommates because we had met, you know, from our previous hardcore bands when he was in Constantine, Constantine Sincati, um, from Kalamazoo, Michigan. We played in his basement. Um, his big brother had a band called Ordination of Aaron, um, you know, who was like, it was just a scene that was like a Midwest hardcore scene. Like you were saying, like there was a difference in sounds and all over the place, but like the Midwest hardcore scene was just like, all these just super polite, like, really expressive, like wore their heart on the sleeves kind of people. Um, you know, there's nothing reserved about them, nothing like stuck up, like or nothing like too cool. Like we were too cool in San Diego for sure. Like we were all like, Oh, we're cool. You know, like we, we gave a shit about like what we said and how we, how we were received and how we were, how we looked, you know, um, those guys didn't give a shit at all. So that was also kind of eye-opening for me. It was just like, here's these people that are just super honest and they're just who they are. Um, and there's nothing like too cool about them. They're not trying. They're just like these really genuine, nice hardcore kids. Um, so that was kind of like the start of my shift of like figuring out that like, I, I just want to do what I want to do. Um, and Christopher eventually moved out um, summer of 97 and on summer of 96, um, he moved out. We started Crimson Curse, um, with, uh, uh, JP and Mike Cooper, who was actually playing drums for Giver One. Um, and then it's another friend of ours who's actually a goth guy. His name was Damien. Um, and, uh, like another friend too that we had met, just, I don't know, um, Ivana, she was playing keyboards. And, 
So we did that for a while. And at the time, it was also like during the time that like Swing Kids' last shows were happening, mm-hmm. um, which I played those at Coos Cafe and uh, uh, Che Cafe and uh, a couple other things. Like there was like four shows that I, that I was the second guitar player for. Um, so I was just like, you know, Justin and I were just attached at the hip, you know, like we were just, we lived, um, he lived in the house. We all lived in this little compound. It's called the, uh, Avocado 500 club in Golden Hill, the E street house. It was kind of like, you know, kind of a legendary house amongst the San Diego scene. Sure. Uh, it's like the, yeah, every city kind of has like the punk house where it's like, Oh yeah, that's, yeah, where, that's where you right. stay. That's where you stay when you're in a band. Yeah. Or yeah. That was our house. We had all the shows upstairs with the shows in our house. Like it was just, you know, whatever. Um, so anyways, I just had a lot of JP and, you know, I just, we just had like this huge falling out and I quit, uh, Locust, Swing Kids, Crimson Curse, just everything. And then, you know, he and I just kind of, um, you know, just felt, it just had a falling out. Um, and that's kind of when, during that time, Christopher and I had already started, Tristez and started kind of discovering like Nick Drake and Red House Painters and like different uh, tunings. And we started writing these songs late at night because we lived together. Um, just like smoking cigarettes, playing acoustic guitar. Um, and that's kind of, that's how Tristeza started. Um, so once I kind of quit all that stuff, that was kind of my exit of the hardcore scene and just kind of started to focus on, on that. Yeah. But like I said, I presume you probably did notice the, um, uh, I mean, the not, yeah, for sure. But, yeah. And, and not from like, <laughs> you know, people coming to live shows being like, dude, why don't you play some of your old shit? But like, just, and, and, and I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest where it was like, you know, I, I was familiar with a lot of those bands that, you know, obviously you were referencing and I, I was already a fan of, you know, Click Attack Katawi and all that other stuff that, you know, existed in the San Diego scene. And then, you know, beyond that from touch and go and all that other stuff. But like, you know, I hadn't really submerged myself in instrumental music, but then, you know, Tristeza was kind of an easy gateway for me to listen to something because then, you know, I would go see you at, at PCH club and I would like, Oh, I really like that. And, you know, now if you were to look at my, I mean, granted I'm an adult now, so it's like, I don't need to be listening to aggressive music 24 <laughs> seven, but like, you know, I, I, def- I definitely have a, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, owed that gratitude to, to you and Tristeza for being able to start to insert other ideas in my head. And I, I, I have to believe that I'm not kind of uh, alone in that. So I'm sure, you know, some people kind of give you maybe similar uh, pieces of feedback, or even if it's just like those earlier shows of just seeing, you know, what you would kind of stereotypically look at as far as like a, a hardcore punk kid being like, oh, okay, like this dude came along from my old bands, but he's at the show. So it must mean he's kind of into it. But yeah, that, I mean, that's well, thank you for one. I mean, that's like, it's really cool um, to, to be thought of in that regard as a, as a, as a gateway, a gateway band for, you know, <laughs> for kids in the hardcore scene to kind of discover other things. That's pretty awesome um, for sure. But, um, but I mean, yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought, but um, I don't know. I mean, back then it was just like, like I said, I had already kind of been doing that music. Um, and then, so it felt natural for me to just continue doing it and have it be Tristeza. Um, but also we played shows. We, I remember when it, I think it was Tristeza's first tour in Europe, we played, um, in, we played in Croatia we played in Zagreb, the cap, the capital, which was a great show. And then we played like, 
deeper into the into the country um, in a town called Posega, I think is what it was called. Um, but it was like 20 minutes from the Bosnian border. And this was not too long after the conflict that was happening there um, between Bosnia and Croatia, uh, or Serbia and Bosnia, uh, the Bosnian War. Um, uh, and so this town was like full of soldiers walking around. Um, we played in a, in a, in a old bomb shelter. Um, the stage was set up at the very end of the room. There was no backstage or no way off, basically just on and off stage. And, you know, was, you know if there was a fire in the, in the place, for example, like we would have just fucked because the only way out was forward. <laughs> um, anyways, I mean, the point is, it was like we started playing and like, two, three, by the second song, like the crowd was just like, what the fuck is this shit? You know, like they were just like bummed. And I think it's cause it was advertised as X Locus, X Zip, you know, X Skyver One, Comes and Curse, well, you gotta, gotta, gotta. Um, and like, we literally just realized like, we cannot play. Like we were getting shit thrown at us. People were like, like reaching over and playing our keyboard is like Steven's keyboards, like during songs and just kind of like, just being like, just and like, it was like kind of scary. And we're just like, all right, fuck this. Like, we know, we know what we used to do. We know where we came from. And we literally just like turned the amps up as loud as possible. Um, our tour manager came and played drums. Our drummer grabbed a microphone and we just like, just started, we were like saying, all right, let's just go. And like, just do that. And like, we would do that. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, yeah, woo. And <laughs> the only time it ever happened, but like that is an example of something <laughs> else being expected of us. Right. Um, and that was, and it was super fun. It was like, you know, back, like, I think I took my shirt off. I mean, I used to play shows naked and things like that. So like, I mean, I took my shirt off and like, you know, jumped off the bass drum into the crowd and like just doing all this, like, you know, it's just like, it was hilarious. And, it was super fun. And we sold a bunch of C- a bunch of CDs and records. And <laughs> of course you did, you know, like, yeah. And they didn't know it was just like, it was, and so it was pretty rad, you know, but like, that was definitely a case of like, you know, us kind of like the only time I, I know that like, Oh, I expected something else, you know, where we just like had to do it. But, but pretty fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely, it's not more apparent when you're in that sort of situation, but yeah, that's a, <laughs> yeah. that that's a very uh, random experience. Rockabilia. So Rockabilia is basically your one-stop shop for all things band merch related. So, you know, sometimes when you just have that hankering for like, man, I, I need to, you know, get some, some band shirts. And a lot of times you just spend hours and hours looking on the internet, trying to figure out what the best company is and be like, is this high quality stuff or am I buying a bootleg? Rockabilia is just, it just takes all the guesswork out of it because not only do they have half a million items, that's absurd, right? They have that hard to find stuff. You can't get anywhere else. And they have something for literally every music fan out there. So you could be like, you know what? I love pop punk and I love some neck deep. And I also like metal. I like ghost or like Slayer. They offer all of that. And it's cool because like I said, none of this stuff is bootleg. They get it straight from the band. They license it from them and they sell it and they pay appropriate royalties. I can't stress that enough because you know, if you're buying off like Amazon or some other, you know, random like Facebook link that you click on. A lot of the times you're buying bootleg merch and, uh, you know, it's a huge industry and Rockabilia says, no, 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 we're not a part of that. We love to pay bands. We love to do this above the board. So they've been around for 30 years and 
I remember I myself ordered some merch, I think some Mastodon merch back in, uh, it was a couple years ago, but it, the, the customer service was great because I had a little shipping error where it's like I, uh, you know, had it shipped to the, the wrong zip code and they were able to, you know, help me out with it. And it was awesome. So please go to rockabilia.com, tell them that this show sent you and, uh, yeah, buy some merch, right? The holidays are coming. You can get all of your holiday shopping there. So rockabilia.com. And thanks to them for their support. Speaking of random experiences where, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, as your stature started to raise in regards to, you know, Tristays are getting more attention. And then, you know, obviously once the album started to uh, come into the picture and, you know, signed to Sub Pop and there was a lot of stuff happening for you from the um, just sheer exposure. You know, you were always creating music and you were always active. But um, now, you know, more people started to pay attention that it wasn't just part of this, you know, quote unquote insular scene, you know. Um, I, I'm sure you have those kind of, you know, weird, surreal moments where you started to, you know, experience more of the, um, I guess, professional side of the music business from like either playing, you know, larger than life shows or, you know, playing festivals that you're just like, this is wild. Um, do you have any moments kind of, you know, that weight around in your head in regards to that where it's just like oh man like i never thought that this thing would happen yet I, here i am in front of this it doesn't even have to be like you know some huge show you played it can just be like something as simple as like yeah dude i got paid like two thousand dollars for a show and i can't even believe that that happened or whatever you know oh <laughs> uh, yeah well i mean there was this, there was an incident in tristan when with tristezza when we kind of started to kind of pick up momentum and um, become a little more, you know, quote unquote, uh, popular and like start selling out like, you know, 200, 250 cap rooms, things like that. Um, which was a big deal back then to, to us for sure. Um, but there was also a moment, um, we played at the middle East upstairs, um, in Boston and, um, uh, that small room, I think maybe it was like 200 cap or even or something like that. Anyhow, we had sold it out. Um, and, uh, funnily enough, um, Interpol, um, before, uh, like maybe two weeks before they dropped Turn On The Bright Lights, um, opened for us. And they were that band that was just like, just playing around locally. Like they weren't really doing much, you know, they weren't drawing much. It was, it was just kind of like back then they were just still kind of, you know, an unknown band. Um, and they opened for us, um, and we sold it, you know, sold out show. Um, and we got, yeah, we got paid like, like $1,500 and they couldn't believe it. It was just like, Oh my God, I can't, you know, like, this is insane. Like, I can't believe we just got, like, we got paid because we always went on tour, but we never made money. We also had like, you know, $150 a month rent or something like that, you know, back then. And so we could do it. We could be on tour. We would sublet our rooms and stuff like that. So we never made money. It was always just like break even and sleep on floors and whatever. Hotels weren't even like a, a thought. Um, but that was really funny. Like, you know, just, um, I guess the story that I'm getting at is like the manager of Interpol wanted some of our money because they thought that they had a, you know, a hand in selling out the show, right. um, which is probably true as well. Yeah. Um, but we had also sold out that room before and didn't get paid that much. They just had raised the ticket price. So we got paid more the second time around. So, you know, something like that. Um, but anyhow, it was like, so I, so I ended up giving Interpol, um, a hundred dollars of our money. 
And then, you know, of course, two weeks later, Turn on the Bright Lights comes out, and they are who they are now. So they're massive. And since I've also been a fan, um, and we've kind of joked about that whole story. Sure. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Um, so that's a funny kind of instance. Um, but yeah, there was another moment. I mean, we played in San Francisco, this venue called Bottom of the Hill, and that was like a 350 cap room, and we... Um, sold that out and got paid like over two thousand dollars, and it's just like, holy, you know, whoa, this is insane. Um, but another moment, just kind of like, oh, like things are happening. Um, but I think like what really was a game changer in my career and kind of outlook of performing was the Cigarros tour. Um, the first time I did that, and that was in was in two thousand one, um, and it was actually a week after nine eleven. Um, the tour started and it started in, the, in Detroit. And originally when I was asked to tour with Cigaros, um, I had zero clue who they were. I'd never heard of them. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was of small theaters, a um, couple of bigger places. I, you know, I didn't really have a gauge of like, you know, 1500 capacity. I didn't, you know, theater, like I didn't know what it like that looked like. Um, and I also didn't know about like, like, I guess, you know, production and, and proper kind of show presentation aside from getting up on stage, setting your stuff up and playing a show. Um, so for that, like during the, that Sigur tour was kind of where I learned a lot. Um, it was just really influential for me to kind of like think about presenting, um, a show and presenting yourself. Um, and you know, rather than just being a band on stage, um, which happens, you know, seven nights a week. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was like a lot of like learning in that where I just discovered that tour. And I think that tour kind of just like let me know that you can do this and you can operate this way. You can have a, you know, a small team, you can have a sound person, you can have a, this, you know, it's just like all of those things were kind of like an eye opening experience for me to like see how, and they weren't even massive at the time. And we played, the first show was at this theater in Detroit and I think it was like 450 cap. Um, and then we played the Beacon Theater on that tour um, in New York, which would have been the biggest show. Um, and I think that was like a 1500 size room or something, which is a lot of people, but not compared to like, you know, the next time around in New York, we played the, you know, we played Radio City Music Hall, which is, um, well, I guess the cap of Beacon is 2,800. So that is pretty, pretty big. Yeah. But you're, um, you're talking, yeah, but you're talk, I mean, that, that's like, it's not, yeah. it's not splitting hairs, but it's just like, uh, yeah, you can mention to any human being in the United States of America, like, Oh yeah. I've heard of radio city music hall. It's like, uh, yeah, I have. Right. Yeah. And then on that same radio city music hall tour, um, I think our, no, our LA show was the Dorothy Chandler, I think on that tour. But anyhow, I mean, then we, you know, Instagram ended up at the Hollywood Bowl, selling out the Hollywood Bowl, 17,500 people, you know? So, I mean, yeah, this is early, early on in their, in their career too. Um, and just doing things in the way that, you know, just the show presentation. I mean, they're all, they're, they're known for their production. They were known for visuals. They were known for kind of their lighting. They were just kind of known for like the aesthetic and mood that, that would, you know, that was presented um, when you'd go see a show. So that like definitely just influenced me, you know, hugely. So, um, and it was that moment really that like I started to just give a shit and started to kind of like think about 
what to do when we played. And I incorporated visuals and I wanted to incorporate some lights and, you know, like we started with just simple, like little wooden light boxes fold, filled, you know, that just had like colored light bulbs in it <laughs> that we would just plug in and just have on while we played with visuals. You know, I don't know. It was just the beginning of really thinking about things. And I think that was definitely a shift in my career, a huge shift. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you articulating that because I do think that there it, there comes a point, it really no matter what style of music you play, where you realize that, you know, it doesn't even have to be at like some crazy substantial level where, you know, you're playing, you know, to 5,000 people a night. It can be like, oh yeah, like I just want to make this space like not only my own, but have people walking away being like, oh yeah, like that was a really, like I was entertained, I was transfixed, whatever, you know? You want to be able to kind of create that. And I think that does separate the, you know, youthful energy, creative passion. And then you're like, oh yeah, but I need to marry this with something that is, you know, could kind of differentiate me from all the other millions of bands doing this, you know, something similar to me, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, so then- and especially just in, in the venues and the rooms that like we play, you know, it's like people that's that's your local spot like you go to the to this to uh say the casbah for example in san diego i mean you go to the casbah to see a show all the time so they have a show seven nights a week and it's nice to go into a room like that and kind of like do something cool and unique and different and kind of transform the room a little bit just to kind of create your own kind of like you know isolated experience um you know rather than just go see another band you know yeah, bunch of you know, just human beings. Bunch, on a you know, another, another. Yeah, exactly. Just swapping out every night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I have to presume that you know because uh, you know all of the music that you have been you know creating is you know it's insular. I mean, you collaborate and you've clearly done uh, you know a lot of that. You know, not only just from a creative perspective, but then you know formally formally releasing records with you know Mark Kozlik and the. Right. The, the the fact that you know a lot of the probably behind the scenes business decisions like clearly you know fall on your shoulders um how have you been able to kind of um like do you like the business of music and how have you been able to kind of manage that uh, you know kind of back and forth in regards to like oh yeah like obviously i need to make a living off the music that i'm creating but you know i don't want to have to you know two or 325 days out of the year in order to like make it a thing um you know i guess how did you kind of navigate that as things started to become more serious um well i did tour a lot um back in my early days um up until about probably 2011 or 12, um, right when my son was born in 2013, I kind of halted, um, touring as much as I used to. Um, um, and as obviously as I got, you know, into a more serious relationship and I married my wife and, you know, things like that, uh, she used to come on tour a lot. Um, but she also had a life and, and a job and I mean, and her own work, um, you know, things like that. So it wasn't so easy for her to just be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to come. You know, it wasn't always that way. So, you know, it started to just kind of get being away was just harder and the length of time of being away was harder. And, and not even like if I toured six months of a year, but I mean, being gone for like four to six weeks at a time, was just too much. Um, so I didn't want to do that anymore. That was kind of the start, but, um, but earlier on, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was definitely like, 
doing the hard work and like being on tour as much as I possibly could. Um, you know, that just, and that does have a lot to do with where people are, um, bands are, because that is the work that does need to be done unless you're, you know, unless you just have a hit or something, which, you know, not, not many people do <laughs> unless you just get handed that ticket of, right. here you go. You're, you are now there, you know, or, you know, it's going back to paying your dues, you know? Um, so I would be on tour a lot and all the time, um, making money or not like in, you know, as I still to this day, like touring is not my main source of income, um, as a musician. Uh, but I mean, you just got, I don't know. I got really lucky with licensing, especially when it was very controversial back in the day. Um, you know, all of in a safe place was used on the OC. Totally. <laughs> um, earlier records of mine were used in the real world. And although the real world itself pays nothing, but you do get a nice, um, publishing writer side, um, for, you know, TV usage. Um, so my, just like royalty checks kind of started to like get a little bit more and I got, and I was kind of consistently making a, a, a decent amount of money. And I felt like I could quit the jobs that I had. Um, cause I was working three jobs at a time, mostly, um, to just kind of stay afloat. Um, and I got to a point where things started to get a little bit steadier and I just kind of like quit all my jobs and just started touring, um, you know, more heavily. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like one of those, it's, it's, it's lucky, you know, it actually, it actually worked out. Um, but I mean, I was on tour all the time trying as, you know, trying to be, just trying to stay relevant and, you know, just popularity kind of went up and up, you know, with sub pop and, and things like that. So now luckily I kind of still have a steady licensing. Um, and like I said, I mean, I don't, I don't make money really from touring, um, as much, uh, I make something, but it's not anything to sustain a, a life of a musician, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm now like, you know, I am able to, um, to just to not have a you know normal job quote unquote um and then just you know work from just be a like i don't know professional musician or whatever it is but yeah yeah um yeah no that's that's cool i mean i i i like how you yeah I, i like how you laid that out just because it does um you know, sometimes there's, there's that collision of commerce and art and, you know, when one person has to make that, uh, consideration of like, you know, like, I mean, you mentioned, you know, selling out licensing your music, like, you know, that, like that doesn't exist anymore. Whereas like when you actually had to kind of wrestle around with that decision in your head, um, that was something you had to do, you know? Um, and, so, yeah. and sometimes I mean, there's a choice I had to make. <laughs> totally, totally. For sure. You know, and, and sometimes those decisions like people, um, it's difficult for people to kind of come out that and still feel like, you know, whether they've made a decision good or bad, where they're still able to feel like, oh, yeah, I, I do feel ownership over, you know, my music and my creative energy as opposed to like, oh, man, I got to write another song in order to land on this particular this this TV show or whatever. You're, you're writing for, yeah. your del- you know, the delivery mechanism in which you're trying to get paid. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And which is also like I'm just... Uh, I'm just so uninterested in that. I mean, I've been asked to like demo for commercials and things like that from music houses. And I just, that world, I just can't stand it, you know? Um, but 
I do love scoring films and I do love, you know, doing all of those things and stuff like that. But I mean, the commercial world and stuff like that, I just it's, cannot stand. It's just, it just drives me insane. Oh yeah. Well, cause I'm sure because I, I mean, I've worked with friends that have had the, a similar experience to you where it's like, you know, because you do create, you know, a certain, you know, you have your, you have your lane and then I'm sure people come to you with these ridiculous requests of just like, hey, yeah, can you make something sound like, uh, I don't know, Train meets uh, Bruce Springsteen? And you're just like, have you ever listened to the music that I created? Like, what do you expect me to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, and I mean, and that still happens. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it gets a little bit, I don't know. Like, I was just scoring this TV show, for example, um, and creatively they wanted, you know, just kind of more push. Um, uh, I, I, and I, and actually I'll take that back saying creatively, um, I would rather say generically they wanted the network wanted more, you know, generic basically, um, just to kind of like be more yeah, of the networks kind of sure. just whatever, you know, without getting into too much detail, Yeah, they but it was just something that like, yeah, it's like I, I'm, I'm a composer, but I'm also not a, like a, you know, I'm not like a, a puppet either. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to give you something cool that I think is cool and, and, and that I like is pushing my envelope. Um, you know, but it just does, you know, those two things just weren't, um, mixing with each other. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I stopped working on the show and, and, uh, they found someone else to kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, give them the, you know, their, what they wanted. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, um, the last two things I want to hit on was the, um, you know, like you mentioned the fact that, you know, you, uh, you know, you're, you're scoring TV shows and movies and everything like that. And, you know, the, the narrative within the music industry of people like not releasing, you know, whatever you, you up until last year, or was it last year that you released the, the record on relapse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 2016. Right. Yeah. And so everyone, you know, everyone makes a big deal out of the fact, like, oh, dude, like, you know, Jimmy hasn't released a record in like six years, and it's like, well, yeah, because I was doing all these other things, and so um, <laughs> I, 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 I just didn't release a record as the album but right. Plenty of other stuff came out. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. Is that in, yeah. cer- in certain respects? Is that uh, a little? I wouldn't say frustrating, but is that a little just like? why is this even a narrative? Like, why is this even, I guess, a talking point for people to, um, you know, kind of, I mean, yes, it is true, but it's not, um, yeah. it's very myopic. Um, I mean, I don't know why it's a narrative, but it is the game at the same time. Um, and I have to say that it actually did hurt me um, that I didn't release something as quote unquote album leaf, um, in that time period, um, kind of went through like a, like when my sub pop deal was up, um, I then released the forward return EP, um, self-released and it didn't really, it just kind of came out and wasn't really noticed at all. We'd done a tour with Tycho on that, on that, um, record. Um, and that was basically the only push we had was just from our own sales on, that on that tour with Tycho. Um, <clears throat> during that time, I was still, I was working on the full length. Um, also during that time is when Mark and I started to collaborate. Um, and our collaboration just started as, Hey, let's just make a song. You know, it was just like a one, it wasn't thought that there wasn't a discussion of making a full length record. 
it was just, we started with the song and like, Oh, that was fun. I think that it was inspiring for him. Um, also obviously inspiring for me, but more inspiring for him because it was, he's just a dude in a guitar, you know, sits in his living room making beautiful records. Um, but kind of a, you know, that's, that's what you're going to get with the Mark Kozik record is a, you know, a beautiful record of him playing the guitar. Um, and I think that him, I think that what I was doing was just so new for him that it was really inspiring. So that led to another song, um, which led to another song and to another song and then talk of let's make a record I'm like, awesome, let's do that. So, and then making a record, I kind of halted, um, I kind of stopped working on my Omnif record, um, which still turned into between waves. It was all the same, a lot of the same songs. Um, cause I had been working on it for so long. Um, but I kind of pushed everything aside because we, Mark and I started to talk about touring and like doing some shows. And I thought, Oh, this would be great. Um, especially I haven't been out in two years and the record's going to come out, um, you know, at this time and the next time people will see me on tour, we'll be with Mark and it'll be a different look and it'll be, you know, it'll be cool. So I kind of pushed everything aside to focus on that. And then, um, then that didn't work out with Mark, um, as far as touring goes. Um, and, uh, so then I kind of like was just back at square one again to, to kind of like start working on my record again. Um, I also had no label. Um, I also was in the middle of kind of my manager, my last manager. Um, and I just kind of weren't really, um, you know, we kind of ran its course. Um, there was no hard feelings or anything like that. It was just like things that were just kind of running its course. And, um, so there's just kind of a big shift that happened like during that time. And I was also, you know, scoring films, releasing films, releasing soundtracks under my name, um, you know, under Jimmy Laval. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just kind of like things just kind of shifted. And then when it kind of came time and I found my, I found a new manager, I signed with relapse. There was still kind of a lot of emphasis put on like, well, there's no rush to put the record out. Um, cause my record was done in 2014. Um, and there's no rush to put the record out. So let's take our time and really build it up. Right. Um, so that's kind of what happened then, which led to two more years going by <laughs> and not coming out until 2016. And then, you know, that kind of being that's six years in between proper full lengths. So, you know, whereas I used to have about two, or three and people expect that two or three, you know, the, the, the most, unless your band's like, I don't know, no twist or other bands that kind of have a little bit more leverage, sure. um, to kind of, to kind of hibernate and come back. Um, and I thought I kind of had that leverage at the time and, and, you know, <laughs> come back out. And yeah. You're like, Oh wait. Oh didn't, yeah. Like, Nope, not that leverage anymore. And now I feel like, you know, it's like, we're at a decent level again, you know, I, I mean, it's still like, I can't complain about anything, but you know, crowds have gotten smaller and I'm just not interested in doing the work that is needed to get the band back to where it was, which is constant touring and being in people's faces with shows and things like that. Um, I mean, it's mostly just shows and that kind of, um, you know, work and that's just, that's not where I am anymore. You know, I'm not going to, I don't have an interest in sitting in the van for three weeks, you know, and all the hard work that we do on such a small crew level, 
Um, I mean, our last show that we put together was you know, a four-hour setup, and you know, and it was just like it was us, the band, four of us. We had a tour manager slash house uh, sound guy. So that's five, and then I had a person with tech, basically, to just take care of my setup so that I could set the rest of the production stage up. Um, so I was, you know, doing all the technical and all the background, setting up our, you know, screens and running the lines and just getting the show to look right, setting lights, setting, you know, all, I mean, everybody in the band had their own jobs too. I mean, they would help with, the, you know, one guy was on nights, one guy was this, but when it came down to the end, like technically I was the only one who knew how to take care of anything. So it was just a lot of work um, setting up and tearing down, you know, a lot of early mornings and late nights, um, you know, to play in, to a lack of, you know, a, a not the same amount of people that we used to play to. So that was just kind of a big, like, whoa, what's going on? You know, like, I, do I have this in me anymore to like do that work, you know, as a father of two, you know, young kids and it's just, yeah, you know, I, I kind of don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You just have, you just have to be yeah. honest with yourself, but you can still. Uh, I mean, yeah. as, as everybody goes through creative uh, or, or goes through pivotal moments in your life, you you have to uh, make sure that whatever it is that sustains you, not only just from like a sheer you know number making money standpoint, but then just the fact that like, hey, I can still be creative, but it's just in a different context, and like these other things. Exactly. Yeah, these, these other things give me satisfaction that I don't have to. Um, yeah, sacrifice for the sake of this thing that I'm creating, which, you know, ultimately is my art. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that you're able to, you know, navigate that and ultimately end up in a place where you can still, you know, release music and still, you know, be connected to people that, you know, enjoy your stuff as opposed to just like, all right, man, I got to hide away and like, that's all I got to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at like moving forward and like I'm looking at like, and obviously I just started my own label. Or, I mean, it started a while back, but I just got a distribution deal so I can kind of go a little more full bore with it. Um, and I'm reissuing my first two records on vinyl and I'm going to do some shows to kind of support that. Um, but moving forward, I'm looking at like more like kind of like city specific um, experiences really like with shows and like trying to look for, you know, local artists to collaborate with um, in those said cities so that, you know, the local artists can kind of bring in and set up a production or some kind of, you know, something that, that like, you know, goes along the lines of what we do when we play. Um, and then, so it keeps every city show unique to them. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to figure out kind of like just how to, how to kind of, how to, how to do it, you know, like, 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 do we, is it flying? Is it this? Is it that? You know, we're like, just, just looking at how to like, kind of like, just looking at touring differently, basically. And like, and, and trying to, um, just kind of be smart with it and be creative and, 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 and do something that, I mean, it's almost impossible to do something that hasn't been done. Um, or, you know, but just maybe take inspiration from the, from the, from the cool things and the things that I've learned and the things that I know. And, you know, translate that into something that's going to be unique, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I appreciate you. Uh, yeah. Going down, uh, places you probably haven't uh, gone down in a while, but, <laughs> but I really, uh, yeah. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course, man. Cool. Yeah. Great conversation. All right. That was Jimmy. And that is what's up, right? Yeah. 
That's a that's a classic for those of you that have heard my struggle for years and years and years to figure out an appropriate way to transition into this outro. <laughs> Anyways, um, thank you very much, Jimmy, for hanging out. And thank you to his publicist, George, um, who helped hook that up. I, I just appreciate that. I always like it when people approach me to be on the show and uh, it just kind of works out. You know, I've, I've been able to create some cool relationships with publicists and these are people that are doing you know really really good work and i love that so thank you very much to both of those kind human beings and uh next week we have a great chat with christopher browder and most of you are probably like i've never heard of that guy's name and that's because he plays under a moniker called mansions who uh you know has been around for quite some time and you know i'll i'll admit that i wasn't like a super fan and knew a lot about what he was doing but our chat was really, really enlightening and good. So you have that to look forward to next week. And, um, yeah, hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving or are in the middle of it. And, uh, you know, don't eat, don't eat meat, right? <laughs> Just have, have some mashed potatoes. Have some green beans. Have some, uh, some anything else. Just, you know, leave the turkey off your plate, all right? Just, just try that. A little, little less meat, okay? Maybe, maybe just a little bit. Anyways, uh, that's all I've got for this week. And I will, uh, yeah, see you next week. Be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.